Welcome back, guys, to the Measured by Success Physio podcast. My name is Greg Hall, but this week your host is David McRae, so thanks to Dave for recording this episode, where our guest is Dr. Chris Brahma to discuss the biomechanics of running-related injuries. Dr. Brahma is a clinical physiotherapist with a research interest in the field of sports and exercise science and medicine. Chris runs his own clinic, Extra Mile Health, while also working in research at the University of Salford. He has extensive experience working in elite level sport, including rugby league, rugby union, tennis, football, boxing, and track and field, where he has supported British athletes to the World Championships and Olympic Games. As I said previously, he continues to be actively involved in clinical research, with his PhD focusing on the biomechanics of running related injuries, which is the subject of today's episode. As always, please go and subscribe to the podcast, leave us a five-star rating and share it with as many people as possible. Go and follow at Metrics Physio on social media and also check out our website, metricsphysio.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Peak Force Systems, who have engineered a handheld dynamometer from the bottom up for clinicians and by clinicians. They're bringing objective strength testing to your athletes and patients for less than 1% the price of an isokinetic machine and one-third the price of other handheld dynamometers. They have a lot of fixation options and can perform over 100 strength tests quickly, accurately, and affordably. So test, don't guess. Visit their products and find more information at peakforcesystems.com and at peakforcesystems on Instagram. Now on to today's episode with Dr. Chris Brown. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Measured by Success Physio podcast. On today's episode, we're delighted to have Dr. Chris Brahma. So Chris, thanks for coming on very, uh, first and foremost. Can we start by getting you to give a bit of a background to your clinical practice and your current research interests as well? Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to chat with you this morning. Um, so I guess like, if we're looking at my sort of clinical background, well, I uh, graduated from Salford University doing physio, so I am a physio by background. I think uh, off the back of that, I went straight into uh, working in sport and in particular I worked in, in rugby league. Uh, so I was working for Salford City Reds, they were called at the time, Salford Red Devils now. Um, and at the time I, I, I worked there and sort of combined that with doing, uh, the sort of, I guess, the beginning of my academic journey at the time where I was uh, started my master's degree at that point, um, which was perhaps when I first started looking into running biomechanics a bit more in depth during that sort of process. Um, I left there in... 2013 and then went on to start working with British Athletics uh, predominantly with their endurance uh, program so working with middle and long distance runners and you know traveling with them on camps going with them to championships that that sort of thing and it was that point when I started my PhD which was looking at into the sort of biomechanics of different running injuries and trying to sort of think about how we could look at performance as well so are the characteristics that uh, dictate those who perform at a high level and those who don't so I continue my work with British Athletics and I still, still do bits with them now. Um, and as part of my PhD, what we did at the time was we developed um, a couple of different biomechanics clinics. So to get these mass numbers of different running injuries and to see these patient populations, we created uh, 3D gait analysis clinics. One was a, a treadmill service at Salford University that still exists. And the other was uh, an overground 3D running mechanics service that is over at the Manchester Institute of Health and Performance. So we still operate that um, and we see a range of different clients. So we look at Olympic level runners, recreational runners. Uh, we do work for Premier League football clubs, uh, for British triathlon. Uh, so we basically try and provide them with biomechanical consultancy services, I guess. 
And at the same time, I uh, now also sort of run our own little private physio clinic called uh, Extra Mile Health. And that again is out of the Manchester Institute of uh, Health and Performance. And this year I have now to continue my research and having got that PhD out of the way, uh, taken on some work uh, lecturing in the physio department as well at Salford University. So I guess in a nutshell, everything I do seems to revolve a lot around running and I seem to have a lot of plates continually spinning. Um, and sometimes I don't know which way is up and which way is down, but I guess that's the nature for many of us who work in uh, sports science and physiotherapy. So that's a little bit of a background to me, I guess. Yeah. So a busy man spinning lots of different plates. To, so today's episode is going to all be about running biomechanics. And you mentioned there that you have 3D biomechanics available to you. And I'm very lucky that where I work, I also have similar setups. However, that's not the case for most physios. Most of the time they have maybe a iPad or an iPhone to, or a camcorder, that's the best that they can, they can get. So I think it'd be a good place for us to go through 2D biomechanical analysis, first of all. So is 2D biomechanical analysis valid and reliable in terms of assessing running gait? And can we advocate using different apps like Huddle to do so? Yeah, so the, ultimately what we want is we're always going to want the, the 3d level of, of kit so you know your, your reflective markers your infrared cameras that's really going to give us that sort of gold standard repeatable method of, of biomechanical analysis but i think as you said like it is not really going to be clinical clinically applicable or affordable for most places so we do need 2d services and i'll be honest i do use some 2d assessment methods uh, dependent on the people that we're seeing and I think firstly, if we just sort of ask the question of, of sort of how we can go about doing it. Well, for me, there are a number of different ways that there's some studies that I've looked at using software like Dartfish, which you can sort of buy and use with a, a high speed slow-mo camera and other studies that have developed qualitative scores. Um, both of these sort of methods tend to give us what would probably say is good intratester reliability. Uh, so effectively, if we're to do it ourselves as an individual, we tend to be fairly reliable from, from day one to when we re-see that patient on day two. The only sort of problem with these techniques is actually that the between tester reliability, so across us as clinicians, we tend not to be able to agree very well on sort of what we're seeing. Um, so it doesn't really work well if, if you're not going to be the same assessor testing twice. And then your validity of, of these methods is also a little bit sort of questionable. So, you know, uh, Brad Neal did some nice, nice work trying to compare Huddle to uh, 3D gold standard gait analysis uh, and found that actually the level of agreement was, was pretty out, to be fair. So really what we have is something that we can test as individuals and we can perhaps monitor change ourselves if we're looking at that same person from day one to day two. But it doesn't compare well to 3D gait analysis. Now, for me, I wouldn't say this is a reason for us not to use it in clinical practice, because actually when we look at people's running mechanics, um, I kind of feel that often we're trying to make binary decisions or, 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 you know, or influence binary actions. We're trying to look at someone's gait and say, does that need intervention or does that need changing? Yes or no. And then we implement a change. So, for me, I, I'm, I don't think I'm so bothered that it's not uh, bang on uh, valid compared to gold standard because, yeah, I can't say tell you that you've two degrees out in terms of pelvic position or hip position, 
But if it gives me enough information for me to say, yes, I'm going to use this to inform my clinical practice, and yes, I can reliably monitor if my interventions are making change, I think that's a good enough way to go. Um, so I, I'd say 2D is a nice way for us to, to look at people in clinical practice. Uh, and in particular, I like the qualitative scores. So effectively watching people and going, look, is this particular pattern, so you could say foot position, is it normal, mild, or, um, or moderately severe? Uh, they tend to be quite nice methods of looking at people. Yeah, and so it is It is reliable in terms of intra-rater reliability. And I think there's some little tips that can, clinicians can use to actually make it more reliable. So for example, always setting the camera up in the same same positions, using the same treadmill speed, getting the participant to remove, I suppose, as much clothing as possible so you can see as much as possible, ensuring that the lighting is similar. They're all things that are going to probably affect reliability. And if you're the clinician testing, you need to be as consistent as you can between testing sessions to, to improve that reliability, I suppose. So if it is reliable 2D methods, um, when assessing running biomechanics then, has there been a strong link established between specific running features and an increased rate of injury? So for example, can you pre be more predisposed to developing an injury based on how you actually run? Okay, so that's a really nice question, actually. Um, so if we were to take the evidence on a balance and say, is there a strong link? The answer is probably no. Uh, there isn't really a strong link. If, if we're to say that anything is, is strongly associated with future injury development, we need a lot of prospective evidence. So we need to follow people from that baseline, see what the mechanics are like, see when they go on to get injured and see if that differs. Now that has a lot of difficulties in terms of how you implement studies. So Although we have quite a few of them emerging, I think we have around 16 or 17 now in, in running biomechanics, which show some links. What we don't have is enough seeing the same things or looking at the same populations time and time again. So there was a 2019 systematic review that actually tried to compile, compile these prospective studies. And I guess the conclusion of that was that although there are links between mechanics like uh, hip adduction angle, to injuries such as patellofemoral pain and IT band syndrome. On a whole, uh, the evidence is pretty limited for, for those associations. What we do have instead though, is like a large number of, of case control studies uh, that show sort of associations between mechanics and injured runners. But the problem with this is you can never infer causation. So you can't say in a case control study that it's the cause or effect of injury. Um, and for me, I guess my sort of frustration is this often leads a lot of uh, clinicians to completely disregard biomechanics of, of actually being a problem at all. So they say, oh, the evidence isn't strong enough or there are only associations, therefore biomechanics aren't a problem. And instead, I think uh, many people like to sort of ad adopt this sort of dogmatic view that instead of biomechanics, that running-related injuries are perhaps more explained by errors in training load or strength deficits or even lifestyle things like lack of sleep, etc. But I guess for me, if we're to approach those characteristics with the same level of scrutiny that we do for running biomechanics, there's no or, or very limited evidence for those features as well. So in effect, there's actually less evidence for things like training load and strength deficits compared to biomechanics as being linked to injury. So 
for, from my perspective, I think we've got these associations that exist. Um, and I think as clinicians, we need to take this on a balance and put it into that perspective of running injuries are multifactorial. There's lots of different factors out there that can contribute to running injury. Biomechanics are just one of them. And we need to, to take that sort of in that holistic view in terms of for some people, it might be a problem. Some people, it might not. And, and that for us as clinicians is where we really need to um, sort of think about what might be the problem with the patient rather than jump into a sweeping conclusion that there's no evidence for it. Therefore, we're going to disregard it. I think if we adopted that attitude, we'd be leaving every single risk factor out the door and other yeah. than if you've had a previous injury. Yeah, I always think as well that there's there's modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. We can't change someone's past injury history. We can't change their age, things like that. But one thing we can change, I suppose, is running biomechanics. So it's something that may be worth our time addressing and assessing. So uh, a big part of your PhD was obviously assessing running biomechanics and, and its link to, to injury. What key features uh, for clinicians at home assessing uh, a patient on the treadmill? Are you really looking out for what are the what are the ones that emerged most during your your PhD? Yeah, so there's a so a few different ones. So my PhD tried to look first of all look at if there's a global um, or global features associated with multiple different injuries. Um, so if we take that approach first of all and say what could be associated with injury as a whole, I, I like to break it down into those positions at first that initial contact, and I guess those of what we then see at sort of mid stance. So an, uh, initial contact, the things we see in time and time again are extended knee with a foot position that's really far away from the center of mass. And this is often associated with a, a, a tibia angle that's not orientated vertically. Um, so it's outreached, it's far in front of them, and the ankle is sort of high up. So it, it forms that sort of classic overstride at initial contact, I guess. So that was one of the first things we sort of found were associated with all these different multiple injuries. And I guess that has quite nice links to some of the other perspective work from uh, Chris Napier and sort of Irene Davis. So Chris's work showed that greater braking forces um, were linked to future injury development of, of runners. Um, and Irene Davis' work uh, talked about vertical loading rate as well. Uh, there's a lot of bit of a debate now about vertical loading rate, but in a nutshell, if these kinetic parameters of braking and, and loading rates are, are linked to, to injury development, um, we've had other studies that have shown that actually that position at initial contact is also associated with these kinetic patterns. So the first thing we look for is that overstride at initial contact, acknowledging that it could influence the loading environment of the tissues. And then the second one for me is uh, then starting to switch around into a bit more of a frontal plane view. And the things that we found um, most strongly linked to or associated with injury was that pelvic position in the frontal plane. So how level they keep the pelvis. I mean, some people refer to this as sort of hip dip, um, but effectively it's that pelvis dropping away from the standing leg. And in some people, we, we tend to see this associated with hip adduction as well. Um, so those were the then two big things for me in the frontal plane um, to sort of look out for as well. And if you're using 2D methods and thinking of that, the physio at home listening in today then, so you're using 2D methods to assess these is it as simple as, okay, the foot is out in front of the line of the center of mass and that the pelvis is dropping contralaterally and it's not about measuring the angle, it's about 
is that normal is that mild or is that say excessive and just kind of categorizing in that sense and not trying to be too objective with it yeah my, my view is that what we should be looking for is things that literally stick out in front of us that sort of jump out for us punches in the face and say I, I can obviously see that so if you're looking people side on so you're getting that foot contact at initial position I always say to someone is uh, I'd say to a clinician that I was uh teaching or, or showing this i'd say does that look obvious for you is that foot way ahead of the center of mass is that leg really extended is that tibia away from that vertical line yes or no and you kind of go with that gut feel if, if it's punching me in the face i'll accept it as being what i'd call moderate or, or severe mm. and the same for the frontal plane the, the sort of cues i tend to use are um the, the big one for me is looking at that knee window so at that mid stance position is there a gap between the knees if there's not a gap between the knees, I'd say hip adduction angle is, is pretty likely to be increased. And that tends to be associated with the pelvis being dropped as well. So I guess clinician looking from a 2D perspective, you kind of go in, is it blatantly obvious? And the reason for that really is because if we look at the most effective gait retraining studies, um, they're the ones that have selected people who have obviously um, uh, different biomechanics to the healthy populations. And perhaps those people with those more severe gait abnormalities are easier to correct with subtle interventions. So go for the obvious as you know, that seems to be where it's having better improvement from interventions. Yeah. And we were talking earlier about uh, Brian Heiderscheid and he was saying that the, there's three things really he, in his most simple format, three things he looks at is, are they overstriding? Are they excessively bouncing? So is their center of mass um, displacing vertically up and down as they run? And then from the frontal plane, are they excessively compliant, as he calls it, which is things like uh, pelvic drop, adduction angle, knee window. So in simplest format, it's are they overstriding, are they bouncing, or are they overly compliant? And you can try and categorize them into whatever one of those that you see. So <clears throat> how that was 2D biomechanical analysis at, say, like a moderate speed. Does running speed influence... Uh, biomechanics and does running speed then influence things like joint loads or muscle activity yeah so running speed has a massive impact upon um what we see so i guess in its simplest form if you say somebody's got to run faster they need to do this by generating more force into the ground and dealing with more forces to hit the ground so what this does is it increases what we call the load magnitude so that level of force that's applied on tissues as a whole and if we look at any sort of study, we see as you gradually increase your speed, you see exponential increases in those muscle forces. So we know Slayer's forces, even at a jogging pace, are around six times body weight. And if you move up to around seven meters per second, which is probably track type session, speed session for some types of athletes, is ramping up to around seven and a half times body weight there. Similarly for hamstring loads, as soon as you increase speed, they go through the roof. And I mean, we've published a recent paper that looked at the effect of Achilles uh, tendon forces across a range of speeds, and they seem to ramp up through the roof. So in effect, there's large increase in, in, in force and stress that you get on different tissues are going to influence the potential injury risk. Now, Brent Edwards has got, you know, he published a really nice seminal paper for me, which I, I, I find fascinating and I refer back to quite a lot, which referred to running injuries as, as a mechanical fatigue phenomenon. So basically, the, the load that we applied to the, the human tissues results in this gradual fatigue and gradual damage that occurs to structures. 
which can ultimately influence their injury. So if we have a higher amount of stress that's put on the body for each foot contact, then the rate of damage that is going to occur to tissues is going to be slightly higher. So within his, um, his work, he then talked about how if you're going to increase the, that stress on a tissue, there's going to be less number of loading cycles it can tolerate before reaching its failure point. So for me as a clinician, that says if we run faster and we increase the stress on all of our different structures, we can't tolerate as many loading cycles before those tissues might be vulnerable to, to fatigue and failure. So we've got to factor this in when we're thinking about um, the cause of injury for the first place and within our rehab. So from a cause perspective, if we're seeing a runner come into the clinic, have they recently changed the, the amount of volume they're doing speed work? So even subtle, like, okay, I ran a, a Sunday long run for 15 minutes more than usual, but 30 seconds per mile faster than usual, that's going to have a massive increase on the stress that's put on tissues and could something so sort of like that could be the explanation for an injury. And then the same perspective, if we're returning people back to running, we've got to, you know, it's all well and good. We might get them to 30 minutes of running or, or, or 40 minutes of running. Um, but what we've got to factor in is if we start changing the paces that they are exposed to, they might not necessarily hit the same duration. So we have to modify the training load and sort of bring back down the amount of time we let them run in at a faster pace in acknowledgement that forces are going to be higher. This episode is brought to you by Peak Force Systems. Test, don't guess. Visit peakforcesystems.com and at Peak Force Systems on Instagram for more information. So if we've identified that things like pelvic drop are an issue or we've identified that the overstriding and making ground contact in front of their center mass is an issue. What is kind of a sweeping statement, I suppose, what is, or is there an optimal running pattern we should be working towards? So what, how do we go about correcting that? And how do we actually go about then developing a more optimal running pattern for this patient? Yeah. Interesting. So I could potentially get shot by um, the, <laughs> the scientific community for, for this, but Okay, I'm a big fan that I think we can, I do think we can optimize running form to it to an extent in, in some people. Um, I'll tell you what that is and I'll, I'll sort of give you a bit of my justification for why I think that. So if I am thinking of an, an optimal thing of what I want from a person is I want a, if I start the trunk, I want a subtle forward lean. So there's a balance between be, being too upright and too far forward. If we are too far forward, we'll effectively just topple over or we'll need to like overstride to break and catch ourselves. And if we're too upright, we limit our ability to recruit hip extensors during stance phase. So what we're kind of looking for is just a subtle drift of the chest forward. It should usually be around a 10 degree forward lean is what we sort of find in amongst elite runners. And then if we transfer down to sort of lower limb, in that sort of sagittal plane, then what I want is a vertically orientated tibia that's close to the center of mass. Um, now, you'll never get it directly underneath the center of mass. That's just humanly impossible because we need a degree of breaking force. But it's nicely close to the center of mass with that tibia vertical. If we look at the foot, I'm not really bothered about if a, if a person was to land forefoot or rear foot. I kind of think that kind of comes down to sort of what their habitual is. But what I do want to see is, is the foot, what we call inclination angle. So how far that sole of the foot is elevated off the floor. 
could be in either direction with a four foot or rear foot strike. But we want that to be nice and low to the ground. And effectively what this then would, would do or mean is that as soon as you hit, you're hitting the floor, you're engaging ankle dorsiflexion relatively quickly and you're able to start storing energy within those elastic structures of your Achilles tendon. Um, so that for me is what I'd like in the sagittal plane. What I then want as you transfer into sort of the mid stance is for them to be able to maintain a degree of, of, of knee joint stiffness. So not being too compliant, not sinking too much. Um, and a big cue I use with people is at this time is making sure that knee is not excessively translating over the toes. If you, if you look at a line drawn from the knee to the toes at mid stance, if you, you, what you don't want to see is, is that big gap between the two. That for me would suggest that someone's sinking a bit too much, potentially absorbing too much in the muscle system rather than being able to maintain stiffness and store it into the tendons. And then the transfer to toe off, we don't want to see an excessive push. So I think this, this idea of triple extension is a little bit of a myth when it comes to endurance running. Um, the most efficient runners tend to still have a degree of knee bend as they toe off. Um, so we don't want to see excessive pushing at the end. And then in the frontal plane, uh, you know, we like almost a horizontal pelvis. There's a small little bit of a drop, but you don't want it to be too much. And a nice clear knee window, it tends to be what I'm looking for. Um, and I guess those for me would be my model of what I want from a um, optimal running pattern um, per se, um, which I know people might obviously think that we can't really say that there's an optimal running pattern, but you know, I think my sort of counter argument for that was, it probably comes from some of my data I need to actually get out there and publish, uh, I, sh I should think. But what we did is over time, we, we've, we've collected a mass number of runners from those that are injured and those that are healthy. And what I've started to do is look at all of these healthy runners that we've got. Uh, we've got way over 100 runners who have been injury-free for like the last 24 months. And um, in its simplest form, we looked at the mileage that they're generally running week on week and what their mechanical patterns were like. And I guess what you find is if, if someone only runs low mileage per week, that the variability in how they run is massive. So they might not conform to this theoretical optimal, which I've just described. But as that mileage starts to ramp up and as the demands of the sport start to increase, so getting above 50 miles per week, for example, a lot of these runners then tend to start to conform to this uh, theoretical optimal. So there's less variation in the movement patterns that we see in amongst these runners at that high end level. So that really raises two questions, two things for me is that number one, are these people who are attaining high mileage um, developing their mechanics as they go to form a pattern that's perhaps more energy efficient and perhaps less likely to stress tissues on the body? Or are those people who don't conform to this norm um, and that only have limited load exposure of only doing small mileage per week is what's happening is when they transfer or try to get to higher volumes, are they then just becoming injured because the tissue stress goes through the roof? Um, you know, so because we see in these patterns, for me, that starts to sort of think for me that if you want to attain high volumes of training and you really want to push the physical boundaries that you can attain running wise, that perhaps we need to optimize our running form to reduce stress and try and adopt a more efficient pattern uh, of moving. Yeah. I don't think there's one, you're right in saying that there's never really one 
uh, size fits all, everyone's going to have their own level of variation, even right up to the elite level. There's going to be some level of variation in their running pattern, but there's definitely things that can make us more efficient. And there's definitely running patterns, I suppose, that can reduce things like bone stress or joint stress that we can strive for as physios to help an injured person who's in with us, you know? Yeah, I think that that's quite an important point is like, yeah, there isn't a one size fits all. But the, for me, there are certain key parameters that I think per, perhaps have to be optimized at split moments in time. So, you know, we see people who have distinctly different patterns. They might flick their arms out to the side. They might have a leg flick that swings out somewhere. But effectively, I'd say, OK, how could that theoretically contribute to tissue stress? And are we seeing that within the literature of being associated with injury? And if we're not, then I'd say, okay, well, that forms part of those movement patterns that can be just completely whatever they want to be. And it doesn't really have any sort of consequence. Um, so I think that's where it comes down to the whole, there isn't a one size fits all in terms of there are aspects that can be hugely variable and really doesn't matter. But for me, there are some things that if we want to reduce bone stress injuries, as you say, or reduce tendon loads that perhaps need to conform to uh, more of this theoretical in inverted commas optimal i guess what are your thoughts around uh making short-term changes so for example uh, a patient comes in and they've, they've a new injury that they've never experienced before you identify some some traits in their running pattern that you try and change in the short term to give them some relief versus say someone that comes in who is a chronic uh chronic achilles tendinopathy or a chronic you know repeat hamstring strain or something like that where you're thinking maybe we need to try and permanently change biomechanics here versus maybe if we can just change it in the short term it will help you out what are your what are your thoughts around that yeah i think you're kind of hitting the nail on the head really with sort of my opinion um so for me anyone who comes in it, it's kind of um you treat them on an individual basis i'm not one who likes to just quickly sweep in and, and change someone's mechanics unless it fits the background and the context of that person so when we change in any sort of mechanics for me we've got to weigh up the the risk versus the benefit to someone so I'd, i'm not a fan of changing foot strike positions because i think the risk from what we know in the literature is really high for encouraging calf strain injuries bone stress injuries of, of, of the foot um, but for other sort of simple modifications like your step rate and your cadence there tends to be sort of limited um, risks associated with that. So if we're thinking that we want to offload a particular structure and allow an athlete to keep running within a pain-free realm, from a short-term perspective, modifying that, that cadence, or, or, you know, and even just making them run a bit slower can really be useful to help offload that particular structure. Um, and then allowing them to gradually sort of phase back to their, their norm as, as they return to a sort of healthy status. I guess where I'd make more drastic changes are, as you say, those athletes who are chronically broken, they're not attaining, um, able to attain any regular and consistent running. So then if for me, I think these mechanics are contributing to tissue stress, I think that's a point, an important point is, are the mechanics contributing to that tissue stress? Then we might start having that conversation with an athlete of like, look, perhaps we need to take more of a long-term view of this and really try and change your movement patterns um, in order to reduce the tissue stress going forward. Um, and I guess that's the only time when, say I'm working with a runner who's got patellofemoral OA, um, you know, that might be a case where we have that conversation regards, do we want to change foot strike pattern with this person? 
um, in order to allow them to do some running pain free. But it really has to, I guess the, you know, the the risk versus reward has to have that balance. Yeah, I think that leads nicely into sort of my next question then, which was, so we've been able to identify certain biomechanical traits in someone's running uh, style, and then we're going to go and try and actually influence some change for them. So as physios, we might look at something like, okay, a pelvic drop, let's start doing loads of lateral hip and and, uh, pelvic control work. A running coach might start doing a lot more coaching and cueing around running style. How do we best change these biomechanical traits? Is it one or the other? Is it maybe a bit of both? What, what's your approach? Okay, so the simplest way for clinicians to change is, is using those um, quick cues while they're running, like you're changing your step rate, step width, uh, foot strike pattern. But for me, I, I think that's a very simplistic view of, of how we do it. And in clinical practice, I tend to adopt more of a, of a complex view. So first of all, my question is, when I see someone, basically, if you watch someone move and you find something that needs changing, I think for me, it gives you a lot more questions rather than answers in in that beginning. So my first question is, why are they moving that way? And it's identifying those uh, modifiable and non-modifiable aspects that are influencing the gait. So from a non-modifiable perspective, is it simply their anatomy that means they move that way? So if I see someone who's got excessive hip internal rotation, you might think, okay, well, have they just got antiverted hip structure? Um, And in which instance, if if they have, you've got to accept that, okay, I can't really change that. So I've perhaps just got to deal with it and improve tissue capacity instead. However, if you look at someone and start thinking, okay, what are the modifiable factors influencing their biomechanics? First of all, I'd look for that sort of tissue strength, tissue capacity. So my big question is, do they have the baseline physical qualities to achieve a movement pattern Um, if they don't then we might want to start there from from a strengthening perspective but the thing here is what we know in the literature is strength training alone tends not to have a good transference to movement patterns so you can spend all the time in the world trying to strength train that lateral hip and working on glute med and giving people climb exercises and hip hitches and split squats But the reality is it tends not to transfer very well to the movement patterns. So my process is first address that tissue capacity and then start to move towards movement specific approaches. So within that, I like to use running drills. Um, So I tend to focus quite a lot on drilling. And the reason for this is I think you can break down a movement pattern and use internally focused cues. So you could try and, if you wanna change someone's um, pelvic position, you could be using a drill that really emphasizes pelvic elevation and cueing them to really hitch the hip up on the opposite side. And I think these drills are a nice opportunity for individuals to sort of internalize that learning um, and apply it to a skill that represents a, a broken down form of what they do running wise. And this can actually take the frustration away from a runner um, because if you know if you try and do this in solely in running, it can be quite frustrating if they don't hit that, that the target and make running almost um, a frustrating activity for them, which you don't want. So drills are a nice way to first start it, see if they can internalize that movement, develop those skills to be able to uh, execute the desired pattern that you want and then slowly start to transfer this into running. So when it comes to transferring it into running, I believe we've got 
first of all, to educate the athlete. So show them what they're doing, make them understand what they're trying to attain so they can try and internalize that and figure it out themselves. Because sometimes I find athletes figure out a movement pattern on their own internal cueing and their own internal instincts, which I have no idea why that worked, but they do it themselves. So I like to give them that opportunity first and then perhaps start combining it with, with other uh, cues that I might use, which could be either internal or external, that are just trying to help figure it out. Um, so it's that process of going from restoring physical qualities and then blending that uh, transfer of the movement skill into drills and then out there into that sort of real world scenario. Would you uh, do a repeat run the same day? So for example, you, you do, do an assessment, you identify a few things you want to try and improve. You, you work on some, some drills, some cues, and then would you put them back on the treadmill and do another run and, and analyze that to see are you getting immediate change? If you're getting immediate change, I suppose, great. They're responding well to the cues and the coaching because obviously it takes longer to improve tissue capacity. But if they don't make change, does that influence your management? Are you thinking, okay, well, they just need more time to practice this or they need more time to develop that tissue quality? Yeah, so here really depends on the, the level of input that I've got with the, the patient as well. So if I know I'm not going to um, see somebody for a good few weeks or, or even that next week, what I want if I'm changing movement is, is that essence of to see them execute it correctly in the drill and to see if I can transfer it to the running there and then. If I can get either, so say I, I get them executing the movement pattern perfectly on a drill, I might leave them and let them go away working on that drill because I know that actually they're picking up the, that movement skill and that movement quality and Therefore, they're likely to be able to take this away themselves and start practicing on implementing it. And those, so those people I would assess straight away. And if you've got those other people who aren't picking up the movement skill straight away, so they find it more difficult on the drill and it's not really transferring to the treadmill, my question then is how much contact do I have with them? So if I can see them the next day or I can see them in two days' time, I might think, right, okay, I'll give this a bit more of a chance to allow them to learn and, and figure it out with the use of cues at the same time. But if I'm not going to see that person and they're not picking it up straight away, from my perspective, I think we're just uh, flogging a dead horse, so to speak. So we're trying to then send them away with something that they can't eat, get, they can't, can't get, they can't comprehend, and I can't assist them in that process. So I might then switch to either using really simple cues like your step rate and using a metronome or even just going like, look, OK, we've got a lot of difficulty here in terms of how you're picking up change. And perhaps we might not be able to change those mechanical patterns. And therefore, I adopt the and I say this to patients, actually. I said, so in, in which instance we're going to try and just make you so strong that you can run through a brick wall. So your tissues are so robust, you can hit a brick wall as hard as you want and you're still not going to get injured. Mm. Um, so that's when I might switch my attack there. Is there um, any other key metrics that you like to, uh, I suppose, place value in outside of sort of running biomechanics? So for, for example, where I work, we, we have kind of a run lab and we have kind of rehab labs that we do. And that involves everything from running biomechanics to strength isokinetic testing um, reactive strength testing on force plates using different jump tests to get a, a full profile of this uh, this athlete and it helps us gear their rehab uh, certain directions depending on what we find obviously so is there any other key metrics you like to to pay attention to 
Yeah, so I, I have some key metrics that I use. Um, and also, actually, we, we spent the, the last five years um, within our, our running clinics collecting a load of metrics as well and trying to sort of understand how these relate to biomechanical uh, performance and movement patterns. Um, and I remember at the beginning, I collected a mass number of these different uh, clinical assessment uh, features and tried to see if they'd relate to mechanics. And in general, if it was one metric uh, versus one mechanic, you'd find no relationship uh, whatsoever, um, which can sort of lead us to down this road of where we think that, okay, I'm not going to look at physical qualities because it doesn't relate to biomechanics. Um, but actually, I think there's a lot more complex nuance in that. So even though these metrics might not relate solely to the movement pattern that people um, adopt, I think there is value in ensuring that people have those physical qualities to meet the demand of running in the first place. So for me, we, we now continue to go through a range of capacity tests because in, endurance running is an endurance sport. So you need to be able to repeatedly load tissues over and over and over and over and over again and recover from that. So we use things like uh, lower limb calf raises to, to failure, uh, hip extension to failure, and, and timed lateral trunk holds are our main ones that I go for because that gives me an indication of actually what is the endurance quality like of that muscle. And uh, what we, although we don't find any relationship necessarily to biomechanics, what we find is those elite level runners are, say on a calf raise, for example, they're hitting 35 plus reps. And your recreational runners are like 25 plus reps. And often in injured populations, you find they, they, they don't even get above 10 full reps. So capacity measures are some that I use. And then I'm really sort of key for me is making sure they have the, the peak muscle forces to cope with even slow paced running. So specific markers are like our, our quad strength. We use handheld dynos for this. And my key marker for, for runners to make sure they, they're scoring over three newton meters per kilo. Um, that for me is a, a big barrier of like you can run if you can hit that um, calf and slayer strength so um, you know it's always a bit of a difficult one to get peak force if you don't have um, a, a, you know a force decks or force plates to, for, for a setup so one of my crude measures that I use is a leg press and I just like to see people able to, pre um, to basically do a single leg leg press of over two times body weight if you're trying to do a calf raise so I'm not looking for them to raise it all the way up, but effectively, if I hit two times body weight on a leg press, they can get their heel just shy of a centimeter off the plate. I'm thinking, okay, that calf complex is generating enough peak force to deal with a jog pace. And then my final one really is um, hip abduction strength. Um, so I like them to hit over 1.9 newton meters per kilo is a key marker for me, because then again, I'm thinking, right, well, you've got the baseline tissue qualities here to theoretically control movement and deal with the external forces that you're going to have when you run. Um, so those are the main ones. And then I guess the, the final thing, if I'm thinking, okay, kind of clear this person to start some jogging would be um, you know, your active strength index and looking at asymmetries in that, I think is a really key one. But if you can't do that, I, I guess it's you know, 30 second repeat hopping and looking for that sort of symmetry and movement quality between the two sides. I think that gives you a really good indication if that foot and ankle is going to be able to cope with a bit of a jog. You kind of want that to be nice and smooth, equal both sides, not reproducing any symptoms. And, and then I'd be thinking, yeah, I'm happy to set you out there and start some, some jogging.
Yeah, it's probably maybe an area of rehab that gets overlooked a little bit is the, the plyometrics because it allows you to bridge that gap a little bit between strength and returning to running. Because like, for example, earlier on, you were talking about the soleus activity levels of six times body weight. And it's like, how can we load the soleus through strength training up to six times body weight? It's just not really possible. And it's trying to find, right, how can we bridge that gap? And plyometrics, even plyometrics might be lacking that stimulus fully but it's certainly better and it certainly bridges that gap a little bit between the strength aspect and the returning to running and not to rush through it and to, to take your time on the biometric phase before clearing someone to run again. Yeah. Cl- clinically, I think that's, that's a big thing that many of us miss as, as clinicians actually. And even when we like tell it to our runners and sell it to our runners is that we, we don't really explain to them how much even jogging, uh, how much of a demand that puts on the musculoskeletal system. And then when we, in our clinical rooms, many people are just adopting sort of body weight based exercises, just calming down pathology. Um, can you walk down the stairs pain-free? And what we're missing then is this massive jump from doing a body weight exercise, which is probably like, you know, one times body weight of load, I guess, uh, put through a lower limb to that running demand where you've got three times body weight of a ground reaction force vector. You've got six times your body weight of a, of a soleus or six times for an Achilles tendon force. So what we're effectively doing, if we don't fill in that gap in between, is, is flipping the coin and hoping for the best when we send them back out there to run. I think it's just a big risk, and it's almost clinical neglect in my eyes, because really we should be progressing that load, trying to sort of gradually increase the demand on tissues to ensure that it's going to cope with, with the demand of running. And that way you know, perhaps we can reduce the high re-injury rates that we see or be a bit more confident in, in going out to run. I think you're right. We're not going to fully recreate the demands of running, but if we can get as close to that as possible with plyometrics and with running drills as well, then we can certainly make a bit more of an informed decision about their suitability to return to jogging. Yes, absolutely. So, so Chris, I think I have picked your brain for long enough um really enjoyed that just lots of uh, good take-home points for the listeners at home so before you head off where can our listeners find you if they want to pick your brain themselves or if they want to follow your content yeah so i'm always up for a biomechanical chat i love running and i love biomechanics and you know that's, that's a big hobby of mine so you can either contact me via via twitter i tend to be fairly active and um i, I tend to respond to a lot on there so my twitter handle is at chris Brammer. Or you can even get in touch with me and just drop me an email via my website, which is Extra Mile Health. Um, you know, those tend to be the, the two best options uh, to get in touch with me. Okay, Chris, thanks very much for coming on. No, thank you very much for having me. Thanks again to Chris for joining us on this week's episode of the Measured by Success Physio Podcast. Hopefully you guys can take away some really valuable information on the biomechanics of running from this episode. Make sure to go and check out Chris's clinic and also some of his research work as he mentioned there. Thanks again to our sponsors Peak4 Systems. Make sure to go and follow them on social media at Peak4 Systems and check out their products at peak4systems.com. As always, go and follow us at Metrics Physio on social media share the podcast with as many people as possible as the that's the best way for us to help and grow the show and we'll see you soon with hopefully another episode of the measured by success physio podcast before the end of this season